This is a conspiracy. That's what this is. One big damn conspiracy! And everyone's in on it! I know what's going on. Did IQs just drop sharply while I was away? person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. Did you see the memo about this? Just when I think you couldn't possibly be any dumber, you go and do something like this. Don't you see what this means? Welcome to episode 39 of your Missing the Point podcast, where we discuss the weird, the wonderful, and the downright bizarre aspects of life, as we have conversations with people from all over the world. Today I'm joined once again by Stella as we continue our series of discussions surrounding Australia's impending referendum on the voice to Parliament. Up until now, we've been covering the surface-level aspects of the voice and its potential implications should it go through. We really haven't got into the minutia of it and how far this is really going to go. Who's been influencing it? and the goals for Australia. To help us dig a little deeper, we have a fantastic guest joining us. I came across this fellow Aussie, Lyra, on Twitter spaces discussing this very subject. She's well-researched, well-spoken, and as a First Nations woman herself, provides an extremely powerful insight into this topic. Lyra, Stella, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Not a problem at all. Um, You are absolutely, by far, one of the most well-read people I've come across, and I'll admit this, I've always been a boomer when it comes to technology, so I only came across spaces very late in the game, and I was really, really uh, given hope by the amount of people who realise what's going on, and particularly with your voice out there, making people aware of what's really going on behind closed doors. So this should be a really great conversation. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm sorry about that. I was just over at the light switch turning it off (laughs) just at that very moment. Um, Hey, Lyra, nice to meet you. It's always good to be here with you, Drew. <laughs> oh, as always, Stella, fellow person in crime with these types of things. <laughs> and as we know, with the possible misinformation, disinformation bill, we possibly could be criminals at some point in the future. So, you know, might as well make the most of it. I'm sure we already are, really. <laughs> <laughs> On a list of some description anyway. Yeah. All right, Lyra, I thought you might could start off with the audience who aren't familiar with who you are, um, where you're from, um, how you got involved with understanding what the voice is and where it's heading yeah so i'm um i'm mixed first nations so my dad is first nations and my mum is um australian and i'm from southwest queensland in the outback um i'm a part of two aboriginal groups so i'm a part of the deary group which is based around windora to batuta and my other group is Deary, which is in South Australia to the right of Lake Eyre or Katitanda, as we call it. Right. So even uh, that some of the things. Sorry, Lyra. Sorry. So even that in itself, you've got two very vast different cultures within your First Nations heritage there with vast distances between them. 
Correct. And they're both quite different in terms of uh, my South Australia tribe has quite a bit of mining and um, different things happening in that aspect. Yet my Queensland, um, we don't have that. So the way that our group makes funds um, is by uh, rangers. We have rangers that go out and do um, spraying of different uh, weeds and things like that. They maintain, um, they also connect with a lot of um, archaeologists and things like that as well. That they're, they're like locating different uh, bodies, organ uh, not organizers, sorry, but um, different uh, sacred sites and uncovering things and locating things like that. So, my Mythica tribe, they've just uh, recently in the last year been able to classify um, with archaeologists and say that we have a 2,100 year old silk road that we used for trade route. Like, and um, so our South, uh, the South Australia tribe, you know, it's got a hell of a lot of history as well. We've got books dating back to the 1800s for, for both, actually, yeah. Fantastic. So you've got this this absolutely amazing background with your own family heritage. Now, a lot of people out there, particularly um, within the left of Australia, maybe even internationally, would think that what's going on with The Voice would be a fantastic opportunity for First Nations peoples in this country. But what was your first impression of it when it, it came a part of the, the national debate? I was always quite conscious of uh, the so-called help that we get. And I've, you know, I think um, I was always pretty open to the idea. And, and when I first saw it, I thought, this is, um, this is interesting. I wonder how it's going to help our people. What are the kind of policies behind it? Because I have had a pretty extensive um, career in, in different fields and uh, my most recent was doing I worked for council but because I was I was the PA for engineering and so a lot of the stuff that I did deal with belonged to cultural heritage and things like that so I was liaising with government bodies so that we could do cultural heritage and, and make sure everything was to the nine and then we could do roadworks and all that kind of stuff and so reading legislation and acts and things like that was a part of my role. So when I first saw The Voice, I was optimistic, to be honest. I thought, you know, I was uh, cautious, but I thought, okay, you know, let's see how this goes. I'll look into it. And I, I went in with a, you know, opt optimistic um uh, you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't negative. I didn't think that it would be so bad. And then the more I read, so I wanted to read where it came from. And then, you know, there were no details. So working in government and doing a um, business, a government business degree, the way that you look at things is different now. So I look at things differently now than I used to. And I'm able to find some of these things because I know that say for example if I wanted to do one thing at work I'd have to contact four or five different bodies and so I was aware from a working point how government worked in that aspect and so if we wanted to do something on the road you know we had to do one abide by QRA standards then we'd have to uh, you know you might have to contact DAF or say gravel tally this and that um, you'd have to contact TMR to do this, you'd have to contact another group. And so it just really rolled on to to do one task. You had to contact so many people and it just it was just insane. So when I started to look at the voice, um, some of the first things 
I was looking for was specifically the things in the background. And so one by one, the more things I read, it just, I could just see what was happening and I just was flabbergasted, to be honest. Yeah. And there's, and just jump in anytime you want, Stal, when you've got a question or you want to evaluate. Yeah, no worries. No worries. You had that understanding of the inner workings of, of how all of this operates, the, the bureaucracy of things, even at a local council level, that everything is just surrounded in red tape and jumping through hoops that the average person doesn't quite understand the wizard behind the curtains like you would or anyone else that probably has worked in government or department before. We know how bogged down and how um, regulated so many things are. So the average person just really isn't going to grasp the finer details of this, let alone the details that they're not presenting to the general public. And that's where your research as has been outstanding in in these spaces where you've been talking that our listeners would know that the roots of the voice after listening to this podcast that we've previously alluded to, that it's, it's predominantly built around the United Nations and agenda 2030. However, there's many more layers to it than that. And it's so multifaceted that it boggles the mind that this plan has been in the works for a very long time. This isn't just something that's been around since the Uluru Statement of the Heart within Australia. This has been happening overseas, being put together, legislated, crossing the, the I's, dotting the T's type of a deal. They've been setting this up for a little while now. So it'd be really interesting to hear um, what some of the first things you came across were and and, and how deep they went. Um, one of the first things that I came across was... Initially, having worked doing uh, cultural heritage and being Aboriginal myself, I already knew the organisation that we dealt with um, in terms of like Aboriginal relations, and it was called DAPSIT, the Department of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander People. And so when I typed in DAPSIT, because I thought, well, of course, they're going to have some type of information. They are now called DS DATSIP, which is Disability Service Department of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander People. So they've actually combined us with disability people, which was a shock to sort of see that. But, um, and also I have a bit of an understanding of NDIS and things like that and how that's kind of gone. So the second I saw that they kind of lumped the two together, I thought that's a bit of a red flag. And uh, so the first website I went to actually had so much on it and the first thing I read was the Indigenous Voice, oh sorry, the Treaty Advancement Committee Report. So I read the Treaty Advancement Committee Report 2021. Uh, That was scary because the things that they've detailed in there are the pay the rent, the reparations, truth telling and all of this stuff. Now this was basically what their ideals were, how they want to move forward and how they want that to look. Underneath that, uh, you then had the Queensland Government response to the Treaty Advancement Committee Report 2022. So they were the first two things I actually read about the report, which painted a pretty bleak picture. Uh, So then what I did was I went through those reports, uh, took the organisations, you know, so you'll read a name, um, such and such. This came from the eminent panel. And so I looked into the eminent panel. Um, So beginnings, you know, it wasn't... It was still finding information and so I initially gathered, okay, this is a no for me straight away and I'm the kind of person that I need to know more information about things before I can start talking. I don't like to talk about things unless I sort of know what I'm talking about to some extent. So I sort of looked into it even more 
I uh, found the Treaty Working Group. I read the Indigenous Voice Co-Design Process Report 2021. And so I thought, well, I'm going to go back and, and link all this together and see which process happened and what was the order. So <clears throat> the order was, firstly, they were that what they did was it started in Western Australia, from my understanding, and down near Perth, they had uh, might have been roughly say ten groups wanted to try and self-determine. And the issue when we look at native title and self-determination, and I'm sure everyone has seen that wonderful map that details all the different Aboriginal um, native title claims, basically, which what is what it appears to be. They're the determined areas, but that doesn't mean that they're consented determined areas. So even my Mythica group in Queensland, Southwest, we have what we have self-determined. Um, the other areas have their borders and it all is accurate. But the government didn't actually consent the whole area. They consented a set, like, I'd say the majority of it, but it wasn't, say, 75%. So the whole area that we wanted to consent wasn't consented. And I do know for a fact that when you look at that map, only 50% of Australia has actually been self-determined with consent from the government. Um, so looking at the Western Australia, what happened over there were the groups tried to self-determine and the government went, oh, sorry, you know, we don't approve these ones because it's over Perth and that kind of doesn't really, you know, that doesn't sit well with us. So a few of the groups, and I don't know if this was initiated by the people, like the groups individually, or if it was a support, like a, an idea that came from elsewhere. But what happened was a few of the groups decided, well, we're not going to be able to self-determine unless we join. So they ended up with three self-determined areas that, that did include some of the others. So it was kind of bizarre how that happened to begin with. And then what happened was they created what was called the Noongar Agreement. So the Noongar Agreement pretty much said, okay, well, we're going to take those three areas with those multiple groups within it and we're just going to create one body. So all of those three groups became one voice with the Noongar Agreement. So that uh, then turned into the Southwest Native Title Settlement and the Noongar Agreement, Western Australia 2016. So that's when that began. And I've got each process after that, but I'll pause. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah, that's like that's what government's determining and not agreeing with where they um, determined the self-determination lines are, where the nations were and, and what their original First Nations boundaries were. Something very similar happened in Victoria quite a long time ago where we know there was that many First Nations in Australia that it's just the historical fact of humanity. Not everyone got along and not everyone would agree on what their natural boundaries were for all their nations. So for my part of Victoria, it's Gunakurnai Nation. Um, which they label as one nation, but they are two distinct different um, cultural groups. And even within each of those nations, the Gunner and the Kurnai, there's different smaller nations above them, that within them that were kind of um, assimilated for the sake of saying, uh, making it easier on paper and easier to put out maps and boundaries. So for this to happen at a, a like a legislative and kind of like a legal framework, it makes a lot of sense that that, that was a way to counter, air quotes, what the government was willing or wasn't willing to do. But, yeah, keep going. It's fascinating. So after they passed the Southwest 
Administrative Title Settlement, aka the Noongar Agreement, they then went over to Victoria because to pass a legislation, you have to create a bill. So they had to make a bill so that they could create legislation. So I'll just find a moment. So after they did the 2016 Noongar Agreement, they went over to Victoria and they created the Advancing the Treaty Process with Aboriginal Victorians Act 2018, brackets, Treaty Act. So after they created the Treaty Act down in Victoria, which came from the Noongar Agreement, that's when Queensland came in and Queensland have created the Path to Treaty Act 2023. I read that act as well. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's very extensive. It details uh, pretty much the things that the United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples details, but some of the things within it, is shonky. Uh, I, as I said, one of my first roles in my job was to create a policy for my council from a legislation or an act. So I, you know, I created a CCTV policy, which means I read the Privacy Act and I read this act. And so even to do that, so when I was looking at the Queensland, the way that any kind of legislation works, and I've done administration and contract as well, is you have to look at the things that are written, that are stipulated, and anything not written within it or not specified as not being able to be included is basically a possibility. That That's how things are written. If it is not specifically stated, then it's a possibility. And so when you're reading the Path to Treaty Act, I'm reading this, um, you know, and, and I'm becoming more... Um, knowledgeable with things with our group and uh, looking at different aspects of how that all functions and so I've become a lot more involved in different aspects of different things within my life culturally as well as in the normal world in the sense of what you know comes on paper and on the internet that's not from us western I, I guess would be the correct word uh, it's it's extensive like they detail the, so, you know, and everyone's to the voice and I've been harping on like the Path to Treaty Act and everyone's saying, oh, that's not the voice. And I am saying it specifically states at the very beginning that it depends on the powers given by the parliament. And that is, you know, that's the catch. That's where the voice links in to Path to Treaty. I'm just finding the specific terminology uh, because the way that it is written and you'll see, have you read it yourself? I have, yes. Yeah. So when you first, um, you know, you're reading along and it'll come to uh, part one, the preliminary, division one, introduction, three, act binds all persons, one, this act binds all persons, including the state, and as far as legislative power of the parliament permits, the voice, the Commonwealth and other states. So if the voice gets through, the path to Treaty Act Queensland will have the power over the Commonwealth and the other states. But subsection two of the Act that binds all persons states, however, the state and Commonwealth or another state cannot be prosecuted against this Act. So this that specifically states if the voice gives us this power, 
then we're in charge of the whole country. So basically, we really need this voice to uh, to flop. But another thing I saw was uh, Dutton's come out and he said that if it does flop, don't stress, he will bring it back in two years' time with a little bit of a reform. So yeah, can't well, imagine turkey. what that'll look like. What an absolute turkey that bloke is. I don't think he understands the voter base at all. It's actually quite interesting that like, how you mentioned if it's not specifically stated, it's almost like up to interpretation that they can possibly do something. Um, that's where it's like the devil's in the detail and the detail's not really there in any of this. Mm-hmm. And I think Stella can mm-hmm. agree on this, that the average person looking at the history of this, um, starting off in 2016, like you said, Lyra, then into 2018, it looks like a nice natural progression into um, a more accepting and a more unified Australia where we're just progressively getting better at things. But we tend to know that this is the slow kind of tiptoe into tyranny that they have to bring about. Because could you imagine if they dropped a treaty on Australians in 2016, just out of nowhere, it wouldn't have gained much momentum. It wouldn't have known. But I mean, if you have a look at it, if you can, uh, you know, even some of the famous people who have come out to support the voice, for example, a couple of songs, uh, two in particular, Mm -hmm. I can think of that are quite old. Um, Firstly, Johnny's song was a Brit, a song from Britain that was, did you know this, that was based about people's rights and activism. It was about them going against the system because they were being oppressed. So that's what the voice was, the song was based on. And then, you know, we've got, um, bloody, can't think of his name, not Peter Garrett. Is it Peter Paul Garrett? Paul Kelly. Paul Kelly, yeah. <laughs> They're both kind of dads. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah, Paul Kelly, um, even some of his songs I'm sort of reflecting now and I'm wondering where did they initially come from? He's always been quite involved. And uh, I do know that my my dad, for example, um, I come from our line we learned to read. My dad knew how to read. My grandfather, my great-grandfather, he was in, you know, World War One. He had the most exquisite handwriting you'd ever seen, like an angel, honestly. And so that's just our predisposition. Unfortunately, not all of our, you know, relatives have that same, um, you know, background. And so a lot of the people my dad's age and older in our family, not all of them can read. And so, you know, when we're looking at things like this and we're taking our people who maybe didn't spend all their time going to school or if they did, maybe didn't pay attention, which is the most common thing we all hear of, uh, illiteracy in First Nations groups is is predominant. It's high, especially when you're looking at that 50 and above. So, you know, taking into context that we have varying levels of understanding. Some people have a shorter memory than others. We tend to forget things that have happened. So this is where some people are just, you know, they recall everything and they're like, yeah, no. But, you know, I've got an auntie who had her daughter taken away because she couldn't read and write and they asked her to sign papers and that was it. It was all said and done. And, you know, connecting back with family members like that, you know, she's got severe mental health issues now she does not want to talk to any of us you know and it's it's hard for her her children however we they wanted to get to know us all and we have a beautiful relationship with them but you know there's so many issues that are sort of happening and 
I think that, you know, it, it's when you don't know the insides of how some of the dynamics work within our families in that, you know, extent, it, it changes the perspective. And, and I think that as time's gone on, there's been, you know, what, a 50-year period almost of a bit of a lull. And now they're, they're coming back in hot and heavy and they're sort of doing it in a different aspect. So, you know, it's interesting from my personal perspective, the way that I am an optimistic, but I'm a realist as well. And so now that I've sort of, you know, done my, done what I've done in life and some of the roles that I've had, it changes my perspective again. And I think this is where for a lot of people, you know, especially with looking at anything, you know, if we're looking at the voice in itself, you know, don't bring the cognitive dissonance. You need to be open, have the conversation and let the information come in and fact check it yourself rather than just discount what somebody has said because I think that is the biggest thing. You might have someone that says three things that just sound so off left, out of left field that the two things they said that were 100% fact and I think this is where we lose people as well. And I sort of don't, this is where I've taken my time to read all of this before I've really come out and said too much about it because it does, you do get lost in the paperwork. You do get lost in trying to explain things. We get frustrated. You know, we get, it's like, how can you not understand what I'm trying to say? Can you listen to me, please? And I think that this is such a game that it's, to the point now where it's traditional grassroots Aboriginals against new modern Aboriginals almost because, Melbourne you know, Aboriginals even, and Sydney Aboriginals, political Aboriginals. Yeah. Neo. Yes. And yeah, Neo-Aboriginals, that's, that's a new term. Now, Lyra, well, I'd probably circle. almost say city. Yeah, city Aboriginals. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I think Victoria Urban. has such a ridiculously high yes um, percentage at the moment. But I've quickly got to circle back around to something you said, and it's quite interesting that you mentioned um, the Aboriginal communities not saying it's all, but there is a high rate of illiteracy people that are over the age of 50. It's just the way that the world was and how they grew up. Are you almost suggesting that the use of a Paul Kelly and a John Farnham and the celebrities and football players is a way to almost manipulate that older generation of Aboriginals into going a certain way because... Unfortunately, they don't have the tools at, of their, at their disposal to unpack the stuff that you've been able to do. Is that almost like a thing that's going on, do you think? I definitely feel like they are targeting certain groups with certain people on TV. So whether that's Jessica Malboy jumping on, whether that's, I'm not really sure what they were thinking with trying to get Shaquille O'Neal on. That was a bit of a fail, but. Yeah, he's um, a different type of black fella. I you don't know, know what they did with that one. <laughs> Yeah, they, they, I don't know, they tried to get the basketball community maybe, but, um, you know, like when you are looking at it, it definitely does appear that they're, they're now targeting the boomer age group, which is, a, as we know, a large population of people, yeah. Interesting, very interesting. I was yeah. very disappointed about Jessica, seeing her on the WEF website. Yes, a young global but leader. I think, yes. Is she one of their global leaders? Yes, young she is. global leader, yeah. Oh, nice. Um, I do think that there are, yeah, that's sad. But there are a lot of people who are just kind of wanting to be positive, wanting this to work, and the propaganda that is coming out, I can't call it anything else, the way that it has been shoved into everybody's face 
the way it appears, it does sound like a good idea. And I don't know too many people that would pass up $15,000 to jump on a campaign that would help their own people. So I don't know. It's a bit biased if you ask me. It's. Um, I was surprised how long they took to get uh, the voice, uh, your voice, John Farnham, on board, actually. Possibly his health might have put a bit of a spanner in the works with that, maybe. Um, He's probably figuring out how many zeros to add onto the checks before he could sign off on it. Yeah, well, he's in very bad health. Did that you too. know about his uh, jaw cancer thing? Yes. Um, yeah. But don't you find it a bit ironic they... Like the voice, the perfect song for any for either side of this campaign, right? Yeah. But the voice, you're the voice trying to understand it, or we can't understand it because there's no details in the document. Um, you can write what you want to want to write. That's what they'll literally be able <laughs> yeah. to do if this goes through because it's so That's ambiguous true. they can fill in the details as they want to post election. We should do a and breakdown of the lyrics. A couple of years ago, yeah, we should. Well, as I said, it's a it's a protest song to begin with yeah from britain so um do you recall a couple of years ago on x factor they had the aboriginal man that came on and sang the voice in aboriginal mm-hmm. no i gave up television. yeah so i mean <laughs> i'm not sure how i seen that i don't watch the voice either but yeah it's um it had come up in things probably social media um it popped up but you know it's it's funny because you know, the United Nations, it's a long game. This game's been happening for however long, uh, but it was first created, let's say, in the 70s, this this particular set of rules that we're playing by. So looking at the 70s onwards, I mean, even the invention of the word Indigenous, I think uh, 1800s, they brought out First Nations, 1700s, I think Aboriginal, and then... 1900s they brought out indigenous and as we all know the legal term and this is something I do for my job in I don't just take a word as face value I look up the legal term the legal definition how is that word used in the law because that is the context in which I use those words mm, not mm. Um, and like I'm self-taught so it's not like I've done courses I just for myself that was easier for me to understand it than the words that I was taught and the way I originally thought so I had to literally change my thinking for my job which has changed my thinking when I look at anything that's an organisation and it has affiliations and especially something that's going to be implementing governing bodies and rules over a nation. Mm. Well, especially, really... Sorry, Sal, especially when you look at what the, the legal definition of Indigenous means, even as a word definition, Indigenous just means anyone born in a certain place. So there's the potential that if this goes ahead, now I'm speculating, if it's in regards to Indigenous children, if that's a blanket term for anyone born here, that would give government and bodies and groups control over or the ability to step in on not just First Nations children, but all children. That's right. And I have found some bills which I have shared on my wall. I'm not sure if you saw the Island Custom Bill. Yeah, I think I came across yeah, that. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. So this is how that all links in. So... Um, you'll note in the Path to Treaty Act, I think it was, where is it? Under the Principles for Administering this Act. It's under Division 2. So it's number six, 
subsection one, the main principles for administering this act is to ensure that in partnership and good faith, the rights and history of Aboriginal peoples and Torres Strait Islander peoples are acknowledged and respected in accordance with A, the Human Rights Act 2019, and B, the principles of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Now, now, section two states, without limiting subsection one, so at the end of the day, we're not in charge, we are secondary, and we have to ask permission, we have to, you know, we can't just do things. I mean, Native Title came out, and this is something that I find interesting, is when Treaty First came out, I'm a part of two self-determination. So to me, I was like, uh, what is this, like, why are they pushing Treaty? That's long ago. Uh, we're past that. And so even looking at the Marbo Act even more detailed, the beginnings of that I am a little questionable on uh, because just the way that native title in itself is written, it is, again, it's not really for us. It's for the government to have the power to say yes or no to our self-determination. They can... Uh, restrict and you know cut and paste it as they please so I will share with you the picture that um, of my mythical self-determination and you'll see that reflection of how much wasn't consented and and this is the terms that's used and that's why I sort of specifically say it the way that they've written it because we get lost in context and, and this is where they use words against us I mean the perfect example of a word that we use now that is not the way it's meant to be used is deadly we all say that's deadly you know and it means it's cool but if you go out bush and you say that's a deadly snake well you're not going to go near that so that it's, it's not a cool so snake. Funny. <laughs> this this is something I found <laughs> really right. fascinating, Lyra, that I'm an educator um, and I see what I consider would be cross-cultural cross contamination within um, First Nations groups. We're seeing a lot of top-end rural outback Indigenous culture taught in um, areas of Victoria where that culture actually didn't exist. It's so foreign. It'd be like trying to tell a, a Russian they have the same culture as someone from Ireland. They may be European, but their cultures are still very different. So we're seeing a, a level of cross-cultural contamination within our First Nations groups, which sure, to some degree, a lot of knowledge and history was lost through colonisation. But at the same time, we're not really helping it by just cutting and pasting cultural norms from one group to another doesn't help. That's right. And when you take a group from one area and you're teaching their language in another state, you might as well be learning German, honestly. Aboriginal people would know 8 to 12 languages. So our language, when wow. you look at our language, it was it's the same as any language, actually. English is the worst version of anything. <laughs> if like we have yeah. words that are a sentence and so you can say four words and you've pretty well said four sentences and so um you know the context in which it's been altered and changed even the term dreaming um, dreaming was a, a render word from around alice springs and the word in particular that they translated was alichera which changes depending on the context that's written after it because I worked in education as well as an as an aide. 
but I was a TAEI, so I was a, an educational interpreter <laughs> doing sign language and things like that. So, you know, I understand phonetics and all that kind of stuff as well. And so, um, as I said, the context was changed because of the way that it was, one, translated with the words that it was used. So it's like saying, um, oh, what's an example? Like, well, the, what happened was, so dreaming. It does mean dreaming to an extent, but that's how it was interpreted as meaning. It's a state of being, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And so when you're taking language and you're altering it, you're trying to decipher it, we do have issues where things are mistranslated, a certain phonetic that might have been written in one way, then someone else is reading it later, and, you know, it changes the context. So even that dreaming, it didn't mean sleep. Dreaming was a state of being similar to shamanism. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um. It's it's also the issue of you have an oral language that has no uh, root word written down in any kind of a – it doesn't have its own script. So we're trying to apply a Latin-based English-Germanic script who has its own issues going on, which is hard to learn, and we're applying a language that's had an oral history to it. So it muddies the waters a hell of a lot. Now, I just as soon as you said um, a single word has an entire sentence worth of meaning, this is where the excited teacher and me got into it. And I've got to teach the audiences out there because we've got quite a few international listeners. The word kangaroo came about when British settlers arrived and they pointed at the kangaroos jumping around these giant rat looking creatures. And they said, what are they? And, and the First Nations that they met said kangaroo and kangaroo roughly translated to I don't understand what you're saying. So we have a whole heap of bipedal, I don't understand what you're saying, jumping around. <laughs> That's very appropriate. That's it, 100%. <laughs> well, particularly now. Definitely. Um, yeah, it's like it's, I have a, I, well, I had a Dutch father-in-law who often just couldn't quite translate exactly, couldn't say what he wanted to say because he couldn't find the English word for what he was trying to say from his own language. There was like, there was certain words that were just kind of missing out of the dialect. So, um, yeah, it's, it's very much, I mean, it's sort of like the Bible too, isn't it? The translations, you know, there's so many different translations and versions of the Bible and it, that in itself can create um, division. So, um, so yeah, it's thank, all... I'm just going to say, um, God bless you, Lyra. Thank you for being one being one of these researchers who can understand all this stuff because I can tell you, people like me really need people like you. I've sat down and tried to read some of this stuff and it's just like, you know. <laughs> so just, I've got to look up every second, third word to go, okay, what does that bit mean? And what? Do, and, and the thing is it's, it's um, that legalese talk too, isn't it? It's like things take on a different meaning when they're written in formal documents and things, don't they? So you've you've got to be so aware of all these different meanings and different situations with blurb. So, yeah, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. I'm, uh, I'm appreciative to be here to, um, to be able to spread my knowledge <laughs> in, uh, in this, oh, this way. Great. I'm still learning guys. So, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, if someone notices something I've said, so, you know, we're all on a learning curve together. But you've got the right mindset, Leah, that you've said at the start that you don't want to be peddling, and now this sounds really on topic, misinformation. You want to make sure you're all squared away with the facts. You need to know for yourself 
what you're communicating to others is factual. Because like you said, if you dump a whole lot on people and it's really heavy stuff like we find out it is to be, you lose them. You almost have to sow little seeds along the way and get the person to to want to find out more. And I think you're doing that in a really, really great way in how you're communicating along on spaces. You're not dumping everything at once. Every couple of nights, you'll give us something new, usually something that you've just found, which is which is amazing. Um, now, for the listeners who don't know what Undrip is, are you able to explain what Undrip is and how it's um, playing into the voice and what's going on at the moment? So Undrip is the United Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. It was, you know, it's a, it's, it's a foreign thing that this body is trying to help out all across the world by a group, getting governments to agree to their process to help Indigenous peoples. I think that we have some people who do know what's happening and we have a lot who don't know what's happening. And, you know, um, like even within my own group, I've got relatives who are very, very smart but just do not believe, you know, the line of things that that are actually in fact reality because they do seem so far-fetched. And I think that's why they do play it the way that they do. So, you know, there's this huge disconnect when we talk about the United Nations. We have this whole, it's a united thing, so it's going to be great. It's a, you know, we see it as some government body somewhere and that's how it's pictured. But really it's a a self-governing organisation who created their own things and then are now trying to push their personal agendas on the world and strategically by doing it, in legislation, in our government body. So there's um, there's a lot of interesting things when you look at UNDRIP and, you know, when they've brought different um, sections of this out in different areas, they're kind of, uh, they've, they're using our own country and our own terminology against each individual nation. So Canada, the, it's the Inuits. Australia, it's the Aboriginal First Nation, you know, and Torres Strait Islanders. America, it's it's interesting there because I can't even make out what they're doing there because the it's almost like they've sort of done their whole Indian type takeover. They're, they're you know the First Nations with with that the Cherokees and things like that. You know they've done their setups and now it seems to be focused more on the reparations of the Black Lives Matter movement and things like this. Did you see this week? Oh my gosh, um, someone's gone back and gone through uh, some of Megan Davis's. Articles actually, uh, Fair Australia shared a video on it. I think she specifically says that it's it's similar to or stemmed from the Black Lives Matter movement in a sense. So she has linked the two together, and well, we all know how that kind of went. Yeah, it's um, it's almost like within the United States they trialed something a very long time ago when it when it came to the Native Americans with reservations and. It was very hard, very quick. And then they're doing it in a a legalese backdoor type of a way with the West. Like we know New Zealand had treaties with the Maori quite a long time ago, but that was during a time of warfare. But the recent things that have been coming up with the Maori land councils and what's happening with farming over there and the health field, same thing that's happening in Canada. It's all kind of happened within the last 10 to 20 years where this has been kind of tiptoeing its way in. Um so much so that what we see happening with Australia, really we're behind the eight ball on a lot of this. And it's really interesting that we know treaties the goal because they'll be able to influence so much through the legalese of a treaty. 
But people tend to forget that treaties usually only occur during times of warfare and that a treaty is actually a two-way street that when you sign a treaty, the opposing side of the other group, they also have to sign off that they won't, won't do certain things. So my concern is if a treaty does get signed, what are Aboriginal Australians being forced to sign away that they can no longer do or won't be able to participate in? That's a bit of a concern as well. Um, well, it sort of specifies in the Noongar Agreement that they were kind of encouraged to give up their self-determination. I think it was for a sum of uh, maybe $12 billion over five years. So, yeah, it's... Uh, <laughs> It's it's attack on our people, and I think that the reason Australia is so slow is, one, the grassroots people, we saw ourselves as the traditional custodians. We never saw ourselves as owning the land to be able to sell it. That's why we lived the way we did, and it's, it's, um, it's interesting because I can give a specific example of how our history has been wiped out. Um, for example, my South Australia tribe had over 400 towers that were documented, which are basically street signs telling you uh, different towers would have different shapes. So a tower is, uh, let's say, a stick in the ground approximately 50 centimetres high, maybe a little higher, and they would have different shapes carved into them. So you would have, if one had a ball shape, that meant a water body. You would have some that were a bit more elongated. They'd even look like some birds and things like that. Uh, and that would detail a specific section on the river. And so history has been lost in that facet. But again, they detailed and documented a lot of the things that happened. If you go back before the 1900s, there's books on a lot of areas. I have books it's insane. And what happened with, um, let's say, S. Kidman? We all know who S. Kidman is. S. Kidman owned so much land. And I can tell you now, in our Mythica country, we have a property called Murabri. He was in Morney. He knocked down humpies and gunyas and things. And so they knocked down housing structures and then said we were primitive people. So there's a whole lot of... Um, washing that's happened even in our history in our own knowledge and what we know and this is where they're trying to create a disconnect they don't want people on country they want to break our spiritual connections with our land and they want to move us off the land and this is where like I think you'd say three generations and you start to really have issues and this is where our people then that disconnect becomes a yearning a loss of a feeling of loss and in our language we call that undilial so undilial as i said a sentence means a going away of the soul a lost a hurt a painless usually ending in death so you know like if you have your grandparents and one passes and the other sort of passes not too long after and you know they've lost their soulmate and so by breaking that connection with the land um, you know, we're losing our soul in a sense. And this is why missions are people who stayed with their spiritually connected areas. My mission, that, uh, the mission that was put in South Australia near our people was literally put on Lake Kilipinya, uh, which is our spiritual connected area. That's our water, like water, you know, our water spirit lives there. And, and so for us, it's like personally, you know, they, these areas that now connected with trauma 
And if people want to stay connected to their land, they have to stay within the government's fencing, like yeah. literally. This is it's so good and refreshing to hear another First Nations person speak about this stuff that I've got a mate from the local mob and he's always the first person who always rags on acknowledgement to country, not for the fact that it's not recognising the First Nations are here, but some of the phrasing that's used in it. Specifically, um, I would like to thank the local insert name here um, for giving me the land on which I play sports on and and, and learn. And he always turns around and goes, it's not ours to bloody give. And through what are the, the interconnections that I've made with local mobs and groups around Australia is that if you are born on country, you are naturally becoming a part of that dreaming, that kind of uh, connection to land. We're actually a part of mob in some way because we're born here. We're actually a part of that that broader story now. We're connected in a way that Westerners just won't be able to understand. And you're right, by switching the terminology and and getting First Nations people to think along the lines of money and greed and getting something out of it, they're completely removing the people from the source of where they've come from. A hundred percent. And, you know, I like, I'm not, as I said, I'm not negative. I don't stand there and, you know, say something when someone's reading something out, you know, I'm polite, but I will have a conversation with someone about, you know, this isn't actually our ways. And someone said to me when I said, I said once in a space, you know, um, welcome to country wasn't our way. Or maybe I put it in a post and someone's commented back and and sort of said, yeah, you know, you'd stab somebody. And I'm like, um, no, but if you've seen Lord of the Rings, you might see how if you came up to the Elvish clan land, you didn't just walk in, they escorted you through. So you would actually go to the clan lands, you would uh, start your fire, someone would come and then, you know, walk you through the land. It's the same as anyone. You're not going to let anyone in your house that you don't know is there. So, you know, it's it's the same. And so the whole welcome to country, as you said, it's become a twisting of the mind and over time our people are you know, joining and and it's sort of, it's a double-ended sword because in a way I know people um, from the land that I'm on, I'm not on country, but I'm near country. Uh, so I know people that come out here and I personally organised for this because when you do a welcome to country or a smoking ceremony or anything like that, you do have to have the body that's from that land. So you can't have a tribe from somewhere else come here. It's It's disrespectful, to be honest. And so when you've got these people coming out and, you know, it's, it's like I said, it's such a double-edged sword because I see the hard work that goes into them learning dances. I've watched people make dances and it's like telling a story. You're making a story and you're putting it into dance. And um, I recall they made one, oh, it was something about the mozzies and it just it cracked me up. But, you know, and this is where we can have fun with these things too. But they're taking what would be normally a spiritual private thing and it's kind of on TV now, it, you know, everybody's seeing it and I think that there's a lack of knowledge around a lot of things and how one secretive and spiritual a lot of these things actually are to us. And so misrepresentations can be pretty upsetting for some people. You have, you know, some people might be using others' dances and, and this kind of comes into the new age of things and copyright and things like that, you know. So there's so many different things happening. But the biggest thing is the money. We have an entire generation of people who that's not our way. And over time, these things start to happen. 
We have someone who becomes maybe a little more new age. Oh, you know, that's not our way. Oh, grandma, you know, you don't know. You're just old. It's the new age. And Mm -hmm. so as these things come out, you know, this is where they're causing us to fight within ourselves. Um, you know, I we've had issues ourselves with greed and things like that within my own tribe in our actual group. So, you know, there's so many issues happening and welcome to country is not a part of our ways. And it is a way for the government to encourage people to jump on board let's say, similar to the $15,000 bonus that you can or grant that you can get if you're for the Yes campaign. So it's it's the same, really. Yeah, it's um, yeah, virtue signalling. It is. And when you actually look at when the first recorded one of a welcome or acknowledgement to country occurred, it was produced by Ernie Dingo to uh, to welcome <laughs> a Maori rugby team in because they wanted that as a part of it because that's part of their cultural practice. So really it's... It's that merging and blending of ideas, yeah. like Stella kind of said, neo-Aboriginals or New Age Aboriginals. We know that there's bad people in all groups and people that take advantage. If you're an academic, say one of these city Aboriginals, like you mentioned, Lyra, and you want to progress your career, imagine how much bullshit you could spin just to get uh, your name in a whole heap of books and and you could get yourself a lecturing position and all these types of things. Like, not saying that is happening on the whole, but I wouldn't dismiss it from not happening at all. Bruce Pascoe but um, (laughs) yeah there's there's so much happening and the loss of culture causes the issues and as you said you know um, urban new age the confusion that's happening our loss of language my Mm. nan so my dad's mother she is one of eight children and the first four learnt the first the last the second you know the second four didn't So, you know, there's the two halves of that. And so I'm talking to my auntie because uh, so I think it was 2019 I was looking up the treaties because I was wondering, not in 2018, but I was wondering, okay, so treaties and this and that, and I wanted to know more so the legal definition. And so I was, you know, not Googling, but I was um, internet searching. (laughs) And... um, So something I came across was my auntie and her name is Betty Gorringe and she went to the Birdsville 2019 initial meetings that they were holding. They weren't invited. She happened to, you know, because when we've got our groups out, archaeologists and this and that, we're all liaising with them, we're all yarning together and this and that. And so she says, oh, are you coming to this meeting down here? Now, keep in mind, this is right when COVID kicked off. COVID kicked off and they went, oh, guys, we're doing these meetings around the country. Come come check us out. Uh, so there's a bit of an issue with that. So my auntie's gone, oh, well, yeah, I'll come along to this. You know, I feel like I need to. So she's gone along and she's um, questioned it. And what she brought up is so great. You'll love this. So enjoy reading this later. The Debney Peace Agreement. So in the 1800s, uh, let's say, uh, it might have been 1886 around that day. So we had this guy named George Debney. He was living down northern South Australia. Colonisation had happened. We had a few family names around our area that are still out this way today. And, you know, and this is where I went to school with people who have the same last name as people who literally in their books have said things like there'll never be peace in, you know, in outback Queensland until all the Aboriginals are gone. 
I don't hold the people that I know in town today accountable for things and the way people's ideas and perspectives were back then. And I think this is a huge issue in where people don't know what it's like in the country. We all grow up, you know. So then you start to get to the city and there really is that, you know, and I'm not saying that there's not racism everywhere. But I unfortunately know quite a few black people, Aboriginal First Nations, who too are a bit racist. So it's a double-edged sword. It definitely comes from both sides. And so the Debney Peace Agreement. So George Debney, he's down in South Australia. He's uh, killed, I think it was, two Aboriginal men on his lands and they just burn everything to the ground and stuff around. So he knew that that just wasn't going to work to coexist. So when he moved up to our lands near Moorabri and Morney and near Windora, he he created what was called the Debney Peace. The Debney Peace was, I believe it was around 500 Aboriginal, not groups, but people attended this meeting. And they created an agreement where basically, look, we won't do stuff to you guys, use can you please stop killing our cattle and burning our houses down we're trying to build you know and so the agreement happened and things kind of moved on um during that time the person who was living on Murabri was I think George might have bought Mount Leonard or something like that another property up that way but um Murabri we had Mrs and Mrs Duncan so Mr and Mrs Duncan they owned Murabri in the 1800s. They had three daughters and a son who passed. So Alice Duncan Kemp, she has written books on our land and the books that she's written about us are amazing because there was an agreement, the peace agreement. And so when the children grew up, they grew up with our Aboriginal people as their nannies and things like that. And after Mr. Duncan passed away, they took the kids out and taught them even more. Um, And so Mrs. Duncan then, not sorry, not Mrs. Duncan, Alice Duncan, (laughs) and I call her Mrs. Duncan because my nan and pop, actually all four of my grandparents were on that station. That's where my mum and dad met. So I think that, you know, when we talk about these connections and we talk about things like that, when you live in the city and you're not near your country, you know, you sort of lose that connection and you just end up living. When you're out here, things change. There's a there's a new layer to things and the way we see things is different or, you know, more grounded to an extent. So the Debney piece, um, Mr. and Mrs. Duncan, there were a few other family names around at the time who agreed to this. And so southwest Queensland was, you know, did become a bit of a safe area on some properties, not all. Not everybody joined this agreement. And I call it agreement because it wasn't a treaty. Um, it was a peace agreement, you know. And, and the difference between a treaty and, say, let's say a peace or an agreement, treaty is... Um, as you said, it's in wartime, so it's a it's a what is it? It's an agreement between a body, a group of people, and the government, so that international things can happen. It's for international agreement making, basically. So, so again, so it's a situation that, where the government didn't have its nose in in the issue when it's 
the situation solved its, itself, didn't it? <laughs> These groups mm-hmm. kind of yes. put, their, put their issues aside, came to a peaceful agreement together without needing Big Daddy government, even back then. I'd say that's pretty successful. Yes, and then, and then 100%. But then, you know, 40, 50 years after that, the stolen generation happened mm-hmm. and the people were taken off that land. So, so how mean, many times was that repeated across Australia then, Lyra? Nothing. Exactly. And how many times could that Which have been are, repeated across, yeah, across all of us, um, th- these like agreements that happened? How many localised yes. agreements could have happened across Australia that we've both white and black fellas now have completely forgotten about? That's it. And I only have so much time in the day, so I've really focused on my own As you um, <laughs> my own tribes in that aspect. So uh, I do obviously look at other tribes because it helps me understand our language as well because although my Queensland tribe, my South Australia tribe, are two different tribes, they're on the same river line. So there's similar words in both of them, which contextually is quite interesting for me personally because I've got a background in phonetics and things like that so you know for me I find that interesting when I look at that so um, just for example in South Australia we call the muramura our creation spirit which is a water spirit but in Mythica they call the muramura simply a water spirit because they had a different spirit in that area that was you know and and this is sort of the context how it changes in each you know you might have um, certain stories that change depending on the location and you know i think looking back at what i was saying earlier about the similarities between um, the the dreaming alitra <laughs> and uh, shamanism you know that connection that's being made that knowledge that's being passed over and and you know just the way that context has been changed everything is seen as such a terrible thing now um i remember growing up when I lived in the outback, it was one of the things I moved away for school and I honestly, I think I was 16 and I couldn't believe the way that uh, some people's attitudes were, even simply to I would see people sitting under the tree. You might see Aboriginal people sitting under the tree. Now, there's a whole lot of reasons why that's happening. If you're looking at the Schumann's resonance and frequencies and grounding and all of the stuff, tourist fields, there's a particular reason why that's happening. And I couldn't understand why people, one, even felt the need to comment about why someone wanted to sit on the grass under a tree because that's all I saw. Yet it was okay for, a, you know, a non-Indigenous person from school to sit under the tree and play the guitar. And so I was kind of like, I don't even get you guys because I didn't grow up with that. And this is where there's different values for people who've grown up in the outback or not in huge cities and people who've grown up in cities, there's a, there's a huge disconnect um, when we're looking at our peoples in itself. Yeah, I think for everyone, white or black, there's a completely different cultural or worldly understanding of how things operate and why people do things. It's it's chalk and cheese. Um, I'm from regional Victoria and we call them inner city soy sipping latte drinkers for a reason because they've got a completely different outlook on what the way the rest of Victoria is. Um, I'd like to go back to what you said about how we know money and greed is such a corrupting thing. And unfortunately these things have kind of been pushed into first nations peoples through the use of undrip and other things that are pushing these ideas. One of the things that I see is a potential really dangerous thing that could come out of all of this is that if a treaty voice does go through and treaties happen and there's some level of self-determination, we're going to get corrupted officials at the top of mobs and groups that 
are going to sell out land for strip mining and for other resources. Um, are you able to talk to at all what's been happening with the Windora solar farm out, out your way? Oh, my God. For this podcast, I rang our general manager today. Um, so, as I said, I had uh, I'd spoken to my cousin. I sort of wanted to get of a background before I you know, went to the general manager. So I asked her, have you seen this? Do you know anything about it? And she was like, oh, my gosh, no. Where did that come from? And I was like, did, you know, did our cousin kind of approve that? And she's like, I haven't seen about it, so I can't see how he has. And uh, so I've rang him today. And the shock was unreal. He's not been, he has no idea about it. So they're going to take our community from um, diesel-powered generators and give us, let's say, the the solar panel, the the plan that they've got there. We all know that's not effective. We all know that the grid can't handle it. It doesn't go, there's so many issues. Uh, So I'll read the the news clipping because this is how we found out about it from the news. Good old Google. I accidentally swiped <laughs> right. And and I do that interestingly enough. You should try it. <laughs> Click Google, swipe right, and it'll bring up just random news clippings. They're always great. I suppose there's your free consent. So Queensland spends $28 million to get four remote communities off diesel for good. This was dated the 29th of August. So I'm finding this stuff pretty quickly, which is which is unreal i don't know i um i'm a karmic person i'm pretty lucky you hit the algorithm um, in the right so, spot that's giving you all the oh, good stuff i do <laughs> Arthur, i can't say anything else um but sometimes i sort of search the right thing too and, and i i know from just general searches i want to find something specific i type in specific words i type what i want i might add an extra word like legislation bill act adding those words changes what your search is bringing up and so, yeah. yeah, so I accidentally clicked right, swiped right in Google. <laughs> um, and the Queensland government is spending $28 million to allow four remote communities to ditch fossil fuels for good by setting them up with solar and battery storage. State-owned energy network Ergon, which is not Ergon anymore, Ergon and Energex combined, they're now called either QC or CQ, I can't remember which way it is. Uh, so they will install 8.25 megawatts of solar panels and 7.5 hour of batteries in the towns of Dumaji, Windora, Burke Town, and Bulia, which the government says will save a total of three million a year in diesel costs. And I'll just state quickly: this has come from the Isolated Network Strategy 2030. So they're basically going into the isolated outback regions. And doing They've always got twenty thirty as a date, don't they? Isn't that a little bit funny? That isn't anyone. Oh, twenty thirty is my favourite date. number. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. But it's funny because the Commonwealth, oh, sorry, the the Olympic Games is twenty thirty two. Yeah, well, I got a bit about that too. <laughs> yeah, so, well, so I know someone who works in Ergon. So I asked about the Iceland Network strategy and things that are happening there. So there's a four million dollar upgrade happening in Emerald right now. They just did a two million dollar upgrade on Thursday Island. I also have a, an uncle and family who live there. And did you know this? You're not allowed on Thursday Island unless you've been invited or know someone that lives there, or you're yeah. there to work. Yeah, that's incredible. So there's there's a lot of trickery that happens with these missions. Outside people, similar to Lahaina, can't just come in and check it out. 
you're excluded. There's restrictions not only on the people who live there but elsewhere. So something funny I found about those restrictions where a lot of those restrictions were put in place with the Native Title Act. Hmm. Mm. It's definitely now. Stella's... How come it's still called Thursday Island and not something Indigenous? I mean, like they're renaming. I, I mean, they rechained. They, they renamed bloody Melbourne to Nam. What? The yeah, hell? They're, they're renaming a whole bunch of things. What was the other one? Uh, Fraser Island. Gar- in- Gary. Gary or Gary? Gary. 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 Gar- yeah, Gary. Gary. And then they named they named Brisbane Minjin. Yes. Yeah, I mean. Did anyone? Yeah, I don't and know. I say I, I, I read that and I was like, I don't know about racist words, but that sounds pretty racist. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know what, Lyra? We have a good friend of the show named Wade, who's a Queenslander from your, your part of the world. He just so happens to work in the industry that uh, sells and provides diesel generators for companies. So I think you'd have a really great conversation with him in when it comes into regards to. Um, local areas going off off the grid, so to speak, and going off fossil fuels. You probably have a lot to talk about with each other. And also Ah, if you could connect us, that'd be awesome. Yeah, I'm I'm just yeah, I mean a lot of people are realizing too that all these, you know, alternate fuels, etc., are really not what I mean, it's coming out now, isn't it, that they're not really what they're made out to be. And I love the way they they say, oh, this is gonna cost I mean, this is gonna save us, you know, whatever whatever it was, three million. They don't talk about what yeah, it's going to cost. Million. Yeah, they're not. They don't talk about what it's going to cost. And also, you know, what are they going to do with all these batteries at the end? Because where do they dispose of them? What do they do with them? They can't recycle them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you know. And is this a part of well, disconnecting? Well, the funny thing, people? same as the wind turbine thing, you know. Mm. Sorry, Lyra. Is and is Sorry, this guys. another? Is this another step in disconnecting First Nations people from the land that they're connected to? Because to have enough solar panels to power these outside remote communities, even though they're smaller, that's a hell of a lot of land. And imagine the type of damage they're doing to the environment while putting these things in and disconnecting people from song lines and other spiritual aspects of First Nations culture. That's going to have a hell of an impact in itself. hundred percent. And, you know, it's... um. It almost seems like you said it, they're shutting certain areas down, and I just, um, my cousin, he went to the uh, this is the board, you know, our general manager, uh, because I brought it up and I said, you know, because it's unreliable, uh, you know, I explained a lot of issues, and he was like, you're telling me, you know, he he detailed a couple of issues where you know they failed. Uh, he went to the United Nations Climate Change Convention last year. <laughs> <laughs> he said sitting in that meeting was just, he said they were just talking rubbish. He said he's sitting there thinking, what is, you know, none of these things are actually practical, real, I don't know what's going on. He just thought he was sitting in some crazy meeting because the things that they were saying, him being a knowledgeable person, um, you know, he's sitting there saying, this doesn't work, what are you talking about? Because in Windora, I'm not sure what year, probably 10, 15 years ago plus now, they installed these three huge mirrored um, solar panels. I don't know how, I don't know what they're called. They're like, they look like a like a satellite dish sort of, but they're massive and they were full of mirrors. They would supposedly, three of them, um, track the sun and, and move as they needed. And uh, talking to him today about it, I asked about the effectiveness overall of how that all went, and he said, 
Well, I'm not sure why they even introduced them when they brought them here because they were in South Australia. They didn't work, that they just rebranded it and brought it up to Queensland. So, I mean, <laughs> it's just one stuff around after another. Does that classify as recycling and if they're people, just reusing yeah. it? <laughs> they probably got some good green, green points out of it. <laughs> Hashtag renewable. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, yeah, you know, I mean, to try and take our communities off diesel is ridiculous. My dad worked for Iowa in Aramanga, which is approximately two hours from Windora, where they get fuel out of the ground and carted all over the country. And it all goes... You know, Sydney, Brisbane, and Darwin, it's going all over the place, gets refined and then, you know, reused in whatever facet. I mean, petroleum, jelly, deodorants, fly sprays, all sorts of things. Um, but the only thing, my dad worked for 15 years carting cattle and fuel. The only thing that ever affected the industry was severe drought where you might either be busy because you're actually moving cattle from out areas and to feedlots and things like that. But there's also the downside where a lot of people don't have the funds to kind of do those extra activities. And so in the meantime, what the government did out here in the West was they paid for the bullets for farmers to shoot their cattle. So, I mean, the introduction of things is just insane. And the only thing, as I said, that ever impacted dad's work and my brother, because he then went to the similar field, was the government policies and whoever was in position in power in the parliament. That, that was it. That was the only thing that ever affected them. They were always flat chat unless the government had come in and said, oh, we want to be green, we need less of this, and then, you know, dad's got less work. I've had a lot of family and friends lose work um, in mines and things at the moment. And I think that when we're looking at mines, people don't realise Aboriginal people own mines too. And so some of the coal mines and things like that getting shut down are Aboriginal owned. So it's not only affecting uh, people who might own businesses and we see that as being this type of people. It affects us too because, you know, and I think the issue is we're getting to a point now where we're not so self uh we're more self-dependent and we're not focusing on the government and we're kind of like, yeah, no, we don't need you. And if you actually have a look at the statistics of the numbers of welfare, uh, obviously we've got generational welfare across all um, all people that live in Australia. And so there's some people who have obviously fallen into that kind of life and then when you start to break those chains and you've got those people coming out doing that next level work and and you know really bringing that knowledge and power back to our communities because we are not leaving because we're grounded and this is where they're trying to force us out because the more grounded we are uh, the more connected we are and the more we'll we'll end up becoming a group that is strong and this is a big concern and this is where I'm sort of wondering about the origins of some of the things that have already come through and, and native title, the act itself is is a bit of an issue, some of the things detailed within it and that, so, uh, yeah. Well, it's, it's a win-win situation for them, isn't it? They get to push the whole idea of re- uh, ridding the world of dangerous fossil fuels at the same time as disenfranchising Aboriginal people that have actually done quite well for themselves and who have built a community and 
started to build generational wealth and they're kind of pushing them down into the victim class that they want to use for political means. And it helps drive these ideas of voice and the downtrodden Aboriginal as being someone that needs protecting and being saved when they're very capable people who can do it themselves. Yeah, it's it's really just trying to paint that picture for people who don't live in areas where they see that happening. And then you do get to the city and I mean, working in education, you see families come through, you see them go and you see so many dynamics behind the picture. You know, you might have um, a group that a family with, you know, a few children and they might not stay very long because they don't connect with the community or maybe our kids are mucking up and then they kind of say, it's like, I wouldn't say they wear out their welcome, but they do it to themselves. I've seen people come to a community and then leave because the kids have been, you know, maybe a few months, six months, say, and the kids have run a mark, which, you know, instead of staying in the community, holding your child accountable, you know, building those relationships, you know, this is where the whole sense of belonging comes from. And, and you know, if we're looking at kids who don't have a sense of belonging, then you're going to have some type of dysphoria created from that because we don't know where we belong. We don't know how we should act. We don't know what kind of community I fit in because they've always kind of moved around. And I think when we look at Aboriginals as, um, you know, being the whole nomadic, um, there was a huge systematic reason as to why that was because in Australia, the climate, you couldn't just stay in one spot. You have seasonal mm. floods, you know. <laughs> uh, where I live is called the Channel Country. You'll have two kilometres of water spare straight up. Like, you know, if you're anywhere near the river during season flood time, you're gone. You're down the river <laughs> yeah, and, with the floods. So there's a lot of, yeah. And as Westerners, we have the idea of there being four seasons, but there's a lot of uh, First Nations groups that had up to 12. They could track precise times within the year of when they need to move on to different food sources or whether the weather was going to become quite uh, inclement at certain times and it was better to move into zones where it was a bit more hospitable at that time of the year. So, you know, these people were here long enough to understand the land and, and how it worked. So that's where we should really listen to them. Um, before we move on, I'd like to throw a couple of hypotheticals at you and see what your thinking would be on a, as a, a First Nations woman, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Okay, so the first one, and it's really it's the same one, but phrased differently. So let's pretend the yes vote gets up and it's successful. Where do you see Australia one week after that event, one month and one year? One week, I think um, you're not going to see too much of a difference. Uh, looking at one month, I think um, they're definitely going to start making some moves on the legislation that's already passed, and this is just going to happen within in their groups that they've been working with, uh, the treaty working group sort of stated things like, well, I brought up the map of the um, NNTT, the National Native Title Tribunal. Uh, so that's the the new self-determined map. So, you know, these things, have, they're already brought out. Um, the land councils have been decided. It's already done. So when we're looking at um, in the future, I'd say within the first year, we're going to see a lot of things shut down in the name of Indigenous people. Um, I think it was somewhere down in Sydney or somewhere that they've just had a native title claim on a, a very prestigious area. And um, the minutes from the, well, that you didn't get the minutes, but the... I think that um, might have been Mossman. The, was that Mossman? Yes, it was. Yes, with the council yeah. meeting having that 
a hidden agenda and it's <laughs> kind of been revealed that that's what that was. So speak. as I stated earlier, consent is given by the government when they decide whether we self-determine or not. So when we're looking at this, I mean, where's it coming from? Who's going to approve it? Uh, Pauline Hanson just um, initially, like, brought out in Parliament that, uh, uh, what was it? They're now funding Aboriginal groups to fight for their self-determination, which they've always kind of been against us. Yet there's no money to go. So if you have um, a First Nations group come and they say, oh, this is our land now and I've got their evidence, uh, uh, then the government's actually going to help fund the court cases for that to go through where previously they did not. Yeah, we're kind of seeing so that So there's a lot well. happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, New Zealand, is, you know, and I think that we are very lucky in the sense that we are the baby country. We are last on the list of things to happen. And I think if Aboriginal people didn't hold off as long on the whole treaty process, we'd probably be up with everybody else. But because we saw ourselves as the custodians, it just screwed the whole plan because we didn't want to sign over to them. They stole the kids, you know, in the early 1900s. So the people were kind of like, no thanks. Yeah, they were like, no thanks. We don't want that. So (laughs) it's actually quite, um, it is quite sad though. And sorry, Stella, you go. I'm, 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 please forgive me. I'm very ignorant about so many things. But I'm just, you know, about the stolen generation. Was that sort of really, do you think that that was, I'm probably stating the bleeding obvious. Was, were children taken for the primary reason of educating them into forming them into the narrative? Yeah, assimilation. Right. Did I just state the bleeding obvious? <laughs> yeah, Stella, it actually um, it went it, as far as the government well, had a policy of um, trying to breed out Aboriginal people within a span of three generations and there's a there's documents calling the breeding out of Aboriginality, which is kind of directing it to where they wanted to go with it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, it's it under the guise of, 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 you know, safety, I suppose, which they're still using the same old thing, aren't they, even now? But, yeah, um, so they, they sort of, um, they, you know, pushed this whole narrative of the primitiveness and, and you know, I guess in the terms of someone living in a house, if you're looking at people who are a little more nomadic, then it might appear like that. But the whole reasoning was because we, you know, they say if you go to an area, take only a picture and leave only a footprint. We lived yeah. that way. It's in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? Because yeah. who, who's, That's the right. judge? who's the judge there? I mean, why did, and yeah. If you were to ask anyone nowadays, would you like to go and, and like just like live in the bush and do this, do your own thing? How many people would be like, hells yeah. Hands up. Hands oh, I up. would. You know, I, I mean, <laughs> oh, you know, like, and well, they, um, they played yeah. on the ignorance actually, and the pulling of heartstrings of people at the time. The people who didn't know any better, the people who in the control structures at the time spun it in such a way that the people who were on board with it thought they were doing the right thing. Like the average person exactly. living in a house thought, oh, lot. yes, like you said, Lyra, all those poor downtrodden people, and they're living and sleeping on the ground. We have to do something for them. So it kind of whipped up an idea that the the mainstream community was behind it because they were trying to look out for the best in people. And like Stella alluded to, they really haven't changed their tune on that. They pull at people's heartstrings and 
weaponize people's empathy and propagandize it. They've commercialized the culture. It, I mean, this, the propaganda is just the it, it's the same principles. Yeah. You know, it's always the same principles. It's always about, as you said, Drew, the heartstrings and the emotions and and the premise of improving. You know, looking after people, the health and safety factor. It's always the same stuff, isn't it? You know, same formula. Yeah, and a lot of the news coming out from that time and anyone who's um, honestly probably over 45 or 50 would pretty well remember if you went to school in the cities, then, you know, what was taught about Aboriginal people in the country was one thing. Even in that age, you know, the 70s and the 60s, yet you've got people that go out on country and they're like, oh, this, what, you know, that's a completely false narrative. And I'm not saying it's it doesn't happen in some areas because... I have been to some areas and um, my dad being a truck driver has driven a lot of places. Um, my uncle's been up north, lived in the communities, helping, you know, just different work that he did. So, I mean, there are a lot of issues. There's a lot of systemic issues. There's a lot of, you know, issues that do happen over time. But, you know, if we look at the systemic of what's happening, then if we say were to, let's say, stopped Northern Territory families from removing children, how long would it be before things did get better if we didn't have that kind of intervention? And I know for a fact that children are being taken from good homes and put into the system Mm. who have then been abused, go back to their good home as a broken child now, and then vice versa, you have good kids coming, uh, like kids coming from a, a very very violent home and then under the kinship rule they get put back there it's insane yeah we've allowed a lot of horrible things to happen through bureaucracy and then and with people to just and people are just blissfully ignorant of what's going on because people aren't having these hard conversations that's um happening like it from every aspect of like i mean there's there's no race there really that's happening yeah no matter what color anybody is sort of and- thing you could just say that's happening to the Indigenous people of the land. Uh, Twiggy Forest, Andrew Twiggy Forest from Fortescue Mines, um, second mm-hmm. to Gina Reinhardt, is a billionaire mining magnate and he likes to help the people. Um, his foundation, actually, that's set up to help Aboriginal people, the Mindaroo Foundation, was named after a massacre of Aboriginal people his family committed. So that's a big oh, stab. I did read that. Yeah, wow. Yeah, that's a, that's a stab and a half. Fortescue, my, I'm not sure if it's named after this river, but the Fortescue River in Western Australia was mined, uh, mined was dammed, blocking, you know, the what would go down the river. So there's so many things that are happening. What he's done, though, to be such a helpful guy is not only does he not like to pay his compensations for mining people's lands and he takes them to court because he knows they can't fight him and they'll lose, he also likes to um, encourage the government to introduce things like smart cards, welfare smart cards in particular. And South Australia, Northern Territory is extremely predominant. Watch that space. That's going to branch out of those states pretty soon. And, um, you know, really? this is the free consent. Yep, we didn't say anything when it happened to them down there and, in you know, the Northern Territory. So now they're going to be bringing it out. They will bring it out on people with welfare. That's it's just so multifaceted. You've got this isolated test group and then you, you bring it out into the wide group. And so, yeah, so what's happened is 
the money expires. Let's I don't know what the time is, but you get paid and then you only have X amount of time before it expires. You don't get to keep it, kind of like toil. And then like also they were the only able to shop. Lyric. It's exactly the CBDC. 100%. Yep, that's exactly what it is. And they, are, they can only shop at certain shops. So when you're going to a small community and you've only got one shop that sells food, I know in Birdsville and Baduri that – out there, to because they stopped the trains, see? They stopped the trains coming out, and that was cheaper to bring in large quantities of things out to the West. So they've stopped it from going out further. Um, it used to go to Quilpie, but now it stops in Charleville, and they have a bus that goes to Cunnamulla and a bus that goes to Quilpie from Charleville. And then they return, people jump back on the bus that, you know, and then head back towards the city. So they've been shutting these things down over time for years and years. And it's sort of, I think that all these things are starting to really come together quite quickly now, the different things that have been happening. And if if they really want to look at the smart cards and the implementation of that, have a look at New Zealand. I speak to people from over there who are on welfare in spaces, and I know people from there as well, but something specific, um, a like-minded person to myself, she pointed out that, um, her name's Kiwi Lass, she pointed out that now they're starting to uh, remove what you can and can't buy, so much so that I think it was, what did she say, vitamins. They're not allowed to buy vitamins with their welfare card now. And so this is the kind of restrictions that come in wow. over time. Yeah, you'll only be able to buy the overly processed stuff that's actually quite detrimental for your health. So typical. This stuff it, just exactly. keeps getting deeper and deeper the further you go down. Yeah. Like you said at the start, Lyra, you pull one thread and it all starts to unravel. You start to see all these things coalescing these multiple little games they've been playing and little initiatives they've set up over time are all building up to this one big, massive, critical point. Now, I've got to ask you that same question again about whether this time at the inverse, if the no vote is successful, where do you see Australia one week after, one month after and one year after? Well, Megan Davis said that it's so similar to, or it came from, not quite sure of the exact wording, but you know, correlated it to the Black Lives Matter. Uh, Noel Pearson has come out and said that if it does not get through, there will be endless protests and carnage. So I see either they get in and they get their power uh, because as the Parta Treaty states, as far as the legislative power is given by Parliament, so if it's given the power, it's ultimate powers. If it doesn't get it, it's just pure carnage. They're going to run amok. They're going to encourage our people to be angry. And, I mean, Tiller Reid and Thomas Mayo, Tiller Reid blocked me on Twitter. It's hilarious. But um, Thomas Mayo and Tiller Reid both thank the Communist Party for their activism. So, I mean, that's how I see that. Yeah, Are you familiar a- with Mepengari? Uh No. All right, okay. What's that? Sorry? I just said, are you familiar with Mebengari? She's a Cindy Cindy Roberts. She's from the Northern Rivers area. Right, I just wrote I her thought, name down. Yeah, I was just wondering whether I don't know who knows everybody. <laughs> she, she's <laughs> that sounds like yeah. the, the most white. Oh, thing. Honestly, you I'm, I'm really new to Twitter. 
<laughs> You're from Australia. You must know. Yeah. Um, uh, there are a lot of us who are connecting, though, especially some of us who are being more outspoken. We are kind of finding each other yeah. inadvertently. Never... Yeah. So um, there's a couple that come out on Twitter. There's another chick called the Opinionated Black Woman. Yeah. Um, she puts a lot of good stuff up, too. Mevangari is, she's very no proponent, but only for the, for, from what I'm seeing from her that's starting to come to light a little bit is she's heavily treaty orientated. She doesn't want the whole voice side of things. She wants self-determination via genuine treaties. Um, so she's got somewhat of an end, similar end goal, but done in a very different way. Um, I thought we let's we could keep going for hours and hours here because you're just such a wealth of knowledge <laughs> and we it's so far yeah, going. I, I think we need to have you back in the future. But as a First Nations woman, let's. I've got a question for you that I'd like to end on a positive note. So, as a First Nations woman and a mother, what goals do you have for First Nations communities? What hopes or dreams do you have for your own community? Um, it's it's a hard one because I see that there's this massive push. And it's come from um, sort of, you know, some people behind the scenes, some people who have been activists for a long time, and I think that whispers in the ear kind of give you ideas that make you think you came up with it, but really it's somebody else's idea. There's a huge push with this whole law enforcement stuff, and this it's sort of like this whole idea of having a separate police that deals with the Indigenous kids. Now, that is a slippery slope when, you know, that whole thing isn't in our control because I think a lot of the things are happening where we're trying to mirror things off of the Western standard and this is where things are kind of really falling apart and then we have the help that comes in. And so I think that the best way for things um, to actually come to fruition would be if everyone sort of like took their hand out of the pie, for starters, which unlikely but let's say that we were to get something to happen um my like my indigenous group we've got rangers that employs our young people to go on country they learn uh our grassroots ways they're protecting our land as well as you know sort of doing the western side of things as well and and so it's a great way for our people to connect back every year my mythica group hold a um, what is it? It's it's a youth camp. So every year they hold a youth camp in the school holidays, and anyone who's a member of our group can come out, and we do our land, our cultural things and traditions and storytelling, and and we go all around our country. So from Windora to Batuta up to Birdsville, we just had our um our art gallery expedition there it was into room before that it's called Kidendedi. that's our word for the channel country and um you know so Kidendedi, they've just had this whole art gallery and so you know the kids on the school holidays got to do this whole trek and um there's so many ways that we can reconnect and get our kids to kind of to reground you know they're sort of lost they're lost in the new age and, I mean, we all know trying to keep up with the new age is impossible because we're not AI. So just, like, let's give that up <laughs> and uh, find our own find our own way, you know. And so personal goal, um, I've just started up a business that I'm putting together. It's, um, it's Aboriginal artwork that I do. And, um, mm. Ooh, and so it's just something... That? 
yeah, it's just something that I've been looking into and how am I going to make this uh, something that we can use for our group and bring things back into it. And um, so I was looking at, you know, making fabrics, uh, turning my artwork into, you know, you go to office works and you're buying all sorts of crazy things with Aboriginal artwork. I go to the coffee shop, I see cups. And so I want to be, you know, more organic uh, cotton, bamboo, linen, things like that, and, and sort of just promote a more healthier, um, you know, I suppose, in terms environmentally of our friendly. environment. You've yeah, environmentally friendly, but also good for the body. As well. Oh, yeah. really? <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, I love that yeah. idea. Yeah, yeah. Because um, I've been so, yeah, looking so for, um, for some, some authentic um, artwork to send to some people overseas, just, you know, sort of a little bit of Australia sort of thing and yeah, um, nice. I've asked a couple of people and I'm not really I'm not finding much so chuck, chuck us a link or something <laughs> yeah I will I will Excellent. um so yeah I haven't I haven't started the business yet I've just I'm in the pre pre-planning phase so um we're building our funds and things so we can go a bit hard and um we're just taking our time so we do it right yeah and mm-hmm. I think that um you know, I've been uh, saying to my aunties and things like that that my goal is to create a foundation because obviously it's a tax offset. So, you know, we've got to be smart. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to create a foundation. I know. Like, as well, Trump use, said, use the rules. Against Hillary changed the tax codes if she wanted to. <laughs> her friends make business too. So, uh, you know, playing the game, making a foundation that literally just puts back into our people. And um, and then, you know, my end goal would be to buy properties that are on our land. Mm. So oh, be yeah. able to, to to buy a block, but I've got to buy it off Gina Reinhardt and we know that's going to cost an arm and three legs. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yeah, she's, she's she has actually. She has tentacles, bought, doesn't she? Well, she's she's a unit. She's buying the blocks out there. And subdividing them, selling them off or turning them into carbon farming. And so carbon farming is basically buying a property and shutting it down and only having trees on it. And that's Is she, is she eating the people from there as well, though? Because you seen the size of that woman. <laughs> I'm not sure what she's doing, but... Um... I'm seeing an octopus meme with a Dina <laughs> Reinhardt head. Yes, well, that old <laughs> World War II, World War I propaganda where the tentacles are everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, she, actually, now you say that, it kind of makes me think of the um, the octopus lady in The Little Mermaid. That's <laughs> dead on. <laughs> <laughs> Gina Reinhardt. What's that chick's name? I don't know. But, um, yeah, actually, something I did want to note is when you see the artwork for the Yes campaign, I find it very interesting. All of it has the symbol for women on it. Yes, I've noticed that myself. Oh, yes. Okay. Yes, I find no that man. interesting. There's no man there at all. There's no man. Yep, and it's it's predominantly woman, not even person. Mm-hmm. It's not person, it's not man. It's specifically woman. And I don't know if I've seen one that has anything other than that yet. Jeez, that kind of goes in deeper level of the whole divine feminine. Yeah, and the it whole does. Esoteric yep, it does. stuff, doesn't it? Wow. And do you want to know something else? The bonus whole do you person. Want to, in, in our meetings, if you had to have a um, a meeting from one tribe to the other, it was the woman who went over and, and had the meeting. Women oh, had really? very important roles. Yes. Yep. Okay, and Lira, when Lira. you take your tribe's name, you take your mother's tribe, not your father's tribe. That has mm. to do with a lot of things. But, yeah, yeah. 
there's That's a lot so to do with the women, yeah. Um, may I ask you a question, please? I was in a situation recently um, very, very quickly. It was to do with an animal that was on the road, got hit by a car, and I had to go and um, fill in this lady, the owner, of, who wasn't home at the time, and tell her the whole story of what happened. And um, she was a, she was an Aboriginal lady. And um, at the end of <laughs> – see, I'm so ignorant. At the end of the conversation, I mean, I was just trying to sort of help out or whatever, and she was a bit freaked out because I was just this person just – walking up to her going, hello, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, <laughs> at the end, um, I, I reached up my hand to shake her hand and she said, no, I don't shake hands. And um, then later on somebody said, oh, yeah, no, you don't shake hands with, with Aboriginal ladies. And I, it's like, I don't know. I was just trying to be friendly. <laughs> like, is that something that you're not supposed to do? Um, what's the cultural thing there? Like, did I highly offend her by doing that or what? Um, that's not one I'm familiar with. But as I oh, said, okay. my nan was in the second half where they didn't learn their ways. They assimilated. So I'm right. kind of backhand landing and learning, sorry, and like I'm kind of my nan um, sort of assimilated pretty hard, I, I guess you'd say. Yeah, and okay. so my, my dad, you know, like we're cultural, but we like never did the whole on land spiritual traditional dancing and things like that and so there's a huge disconnect where I don't want my children to to not know these things and I can see our old our old ones are you know their elders are getting old now and they're not going to be around too much longer and I mm. see the issue that's going to happen if that knowledge is lost and mm. so for years our people have been recording our aunties especially but um oh, good you know over time um, you know, like we have dwindled down quite a few, but yeah, just for that specific one, that's not one I have heard of. But I'll tell you now, guys, don't take rocks from anywhere. Do not, under any circumstances, pick rocks up and carry them with you, especially more so from ex like spiritual places, because you will not have good luck. You should look into how many rocks get sent back to Uluru every year. Oh, yeah, big cursed. Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I'm always against people like taking rocks for landscaping and things anyway, because of the whole environmental damage. It's like, it's just, yeah. So um, that's well, always that, a good policy, but that's so interesting. Yeah. That, well, wow. that's a connection that yeah, I think a lot of First Nations have. You look back at the ancient Scandinavians, even in, in um, Sweden today, when they go to build highways or roads, and if there's a boulder in the way, they're not allowed to remove it. They have to go around oh, it. Yeah. The fairies. The spirits, yeah. Oh, fae really? folk and stuff. Yeah. It's a lot of interconnectivity Which, there. Oh my gosh. The fae, we talk about the fae yeah. in our stories and things. And oh. so, yeah, I'm, like I said, I'm reading our history. And so, but also learning it from our few aunties that we've got left and we've got um, some uncles as well. But, yeah, predominantly some of the well, I'm asking the ones specifically that were taught or remembered and we don't have many left. So, as I said, it's sort of like going back and, and learning, uh, I suppose, watching our family members as well, talking about these things, which is kind of surreal, to be honest. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, um, the not shaking hands of the Aboriginal woman, that's just really stuck in my head. I'm going to look into that. Because yeah, I'd like I, to know. Yeah. I mean well, I, I do there's, know there's so, many, there's so many overlaps and so many so much variation. I mean, I'm not expecting there'd be one solid rule that would be, you know, <laughs> abound in the whole the whole national situation, whatever. The rule is if oh, I'd say yes, or you're a racist yeah, bigot. Go. That's the rule. Vote yes or you're mm -hmm. a racist bigot. That's what you're being told now. 
That's the goal. Uh, well, someone told me I was a white supremacist <laughs> because I'm voting no. And I, I was kind of like, dude, I'm First Nations. <laughs> I'm just well read. Sorry uh, to, to burst your little white supremacy bubble there. <laughs> well, you know what, Lyra, we're going to have to have you back on to talk more about First Nations people because I've been doing a lot of research. Oh, definitely. I absolutely love it. Um, yeah, we'll have to amazing. have you back on, but thanks for joining us tonight. I honestly believe your voice on this subject is so important. What you've been doing mm. through your research, your due diligence, you're really paving a way for a lot of conversations out there that need to happen. And it really helps that you are a First Nations person speaking about this because the media will have everyone know that all Indigenous people are towing the line and voting yes on this, and it's not the case. Um and mm, as an Aboriginal woman right. with, with, who is a mother, you're doing all these fantastic things in the looking out for your community and your people. So well done your efforts so Children. far. Godspeed um, on the rest you. of the work up until this referendum finishes. And you know what? We'll have to come you back, have you back on for that conversation post-referendum as well. Oh, definitely. Well, I mean, if we... Um... I'd love to go into the community guides on the United Nations Declaration that the National Congress of Australia's First Peoples brought out. So we should, you should look into that and we could definitely have a chat about that because that specifically details how it all affects Australia. And that would the, best, be great. The, I mean, the way they've broken it down, it's like gold. Uh, seriously, you know, uh, foundational rights, self-determination and free prior informed consent and self-determination, the way they even detail that, it's just... It's crazy. So, yeah, I would uh, definitely love to come on again and um, happy reading. <laughs> that would be excellent. No, I've got to say um, that you talk about these books that go back go back to the 1800s. Are, they, are these your books or uh, just books you have access to, these really old books? Um, yeah, you can buy them online. Um, so oh, one okay. of so yeah, our Deary tribe, one of the um, police officers, Gaston, he wrote books. Um, there was another one who was a minister, um, a German minister, I believe, and this is where sort of phonetics kind of come into it because, as you were saying earlier, you know, you've got your phonetics from your own culture, so you're looking at languages. I mean, it's like Chinese don't have – Japanese don't have R's and L's and, you know, just the way that mm. – uh, they don't have L's, it changes to R or whatever it is. So, you know, they, they don't have letters that existed in, in different regions yeah. and so mm. – looking at the language and it's quite funny because there was a section on language here it is language culture this is number six language cultural and spiritual identity and they kind of go in and talk about it like it's mythology and then um and then like it all links back to the united nations articles and it'll say like uh culture property cultural property articles 11 and 12 so it's like you got to read those articles and then it details how those articles apply within this to australia (laughs) specifically it's um yeah it's hilarious, you know, like we have the right to maintain, protect and develop cultural property. Well, there you go. That's, you know, a, it's not that's a taster too. for the next episode then. Next time we come back together, that's mm. what we're starting off on. Absolutely. <laughs> and and, and <laughs> I have to say, as a songwriter, I'm really I'm really happy because um, there's this particular word that nobody can ever rhyme with, and that's the word orange. But now I have Auntie Betty Gorange. So <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> yes. <That> wasn't. <laughs> All right. it's been great talking with oh, you, Lyra. That's great. Let's go around. <laughs> you too. Thanks um, for having me on. Lyra, can people follow any of your work or anything you do on socials at all? Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter, Outback Aussie 5, Lyra, L-E-E-R-A. 
and I pretty well post everything on there. I didn't want to overwhelm my Facebook family because I have my um, specifically family on my Facebook and I have put some things out there, but, you know, um, most of the people who sort of see things kind of um, – I'm a logical person. I, I'm not kind of a – you know, a nutter out there sort of saying, we should do this and we should do that. And I've kind of just become political in a sense after the whole voice thing. I never really could say I was a political person. I paid attention. I knew things that happened. I remember the 2008 amalgamations and how the councils all spent their money. And, yes, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, about that. I'm looking, yeah, I'm looking at these uh, new representative bodies and, you know, the terminology is already there, built up in my language. They amalgamated us, the bloody bastards, you know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we got a short memory, so we got to make sure we're not forgetting things that happen, which That's is right. a bit of a concern if Dutton gets in and he bloody decides he wants to do the voice again. Like, his oh. history ain't that great. I mean, we don't all forget. Some do, but not all of us. Now, Voldemort would not make a good prime minister, and um, oh my god, have much, yeah, that's what he, they said the other he, day. He does not have much sex appeal either, so I don't think he's going to get up at any point. <laughs> Stella, where can we uh, find your work? Some of us are goldfish, and some of us are whales. Um, uh, Union of the Unknowns, um, Easy Peasy podcast, uh, occasionally the Propaganda Report, and even sometimes with you're missing the point. <laughs> <laughs> and Thank you for having me. No worries. And if you are listening to this on Stella's end, I have been Drew Misson from your Missing the Point podcast. Thank you for this wonderful conversation, ladies. We are definitely going to have to do this again soon, hopefully with Wade next time, because I'd definitely say that he'd have a lot of information to contribute when it came to that sustainables and renewable side of things. Anyway, everyone, you have a fantastic night and we'll catch you next time. Hey, everybody, it's closing time. You don't gotta go home, but you can't stay here.